So Thomas, how are you doing? Uh, not too terribly. Not, Yourself? Wh- what does that What does that mean? I'm not doing terribly. Does that mean you're not good? Like not doing well? Like, it means I'm fine. I'm fine. You know, as Gandalf taught me in oh an unexpected God. journey. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, so, anyways, uh, so you know, we're here to talk about Tolkien and Lewis, and pretty much just an introduction to their lives, uh, into the books they wrote. Uh, into the philosophies they held, into their religion. You know, one was a Roman Catholic, Tolkien, and the other, Lewis, was a was a practicing Anglican, if I do recall correctly. Um, both had deviations in their religion from kind of the standard doctrine uh, of the uh, um, sect they held. But you don't have anything to add on that part. To an extent, like Tolkien was uh, a lot more orthodox, being a Roman Catholic, whereas uh, I feel like Lewis had a little more of a feeling of not really knowing what uh, religion was in its totality. He was a practicing Christian. He believed that dearly. But um, he uh, seemed to be very unsure of the details and i think that's evident as like the theology present in his works can vary greatly its implications and mm-hmm. there's also i think a lot more overt theology in his books particularly narnia which is what most people know him for today right yeah i mean i i, I would totally agree with that i mean i'm gonna say probably 80 percent of all of lewis's books have a tone that deal with the concept of religion or, or theism, right? Yeah. So, you know, Mere Christianity, The Screw Tape Letters, those are both overtly Christian books. Yeah, um, and a lot of his, pretty much all of his nonfiction dealt with religion as well. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, the Abolition of Man, The Great Divorce, yeah. Um, but let's talk a little bit more about Tolkien real quick. So for you, I don't know, what was your introduction to Tolkien or, or the introduction to his world? Uh, I believe it was the Veggie Tales version of the Lord of the Rings, if I'm no, being entirely honest. No, no, not the Lord of the Bean. Well, no, I, I no. watched, I watched the Lord of the Bean, and no. then when I was like 12, my dad let me watch Lord of the Rings, and I was like, oh, they ripped off Veggie Tales. Right. Um, but no, yeah, it was, it was the Lord of the Rings movies, the theatrical cuts. Um, watched those as a, uh, like preteen, and uh, thought they were quite good. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I read The Hobbit later because The Hobbit was a lot more approachable for me than Tolkien's other, other stuff, while Tolkien's seen as kind of the king of, like, epic or high fantasy with Lord of the Rings. A Hob- the Hobbit was a much simpler story. Uh, I don't know if i call it low fantasy, but it was like bedtime stories. He'd tell his children. And so that was the one I actually read as a young man. And then I saw the less-than-stellar movie adaptations of The Hobbit, <laughs> which we can talk about more later. No, oh, wait, are we talking about the new ones or the old one? The animated Hobbit movie? Yeah. The animated Hobbit movie's fine. I was uh, going to say, it actually is pretty decent. No, it's way better than the animated Lord of the Rings movie, because the yeah. Hobbit movie, you can fit all that in a tight 90 minutes, easy. Right, yeah. Uh, and I feel like the whimsical nature dealt itself to animation more. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, I'm talking about the, the Martin Freeman movies. Oh, oh. Mmm... Um, like yeah, we'll get we'll get we'll get onto the topics <laughs> of movies. I think later, um, after we go into a little bit more about their lines. Um, but yeah, no, you're not wrong. I mean, the Hobbit movies are ov- like clearly worse than the Lord of the Rings movies, like yeah. by leagues and miles. Um, 
so let's let, why don't we go into like what we know about like the early lives of Tolkien and Lewis, and I think you can start off. Uh, are you more familiar with Lewis's life or 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 uh, Tolkien? Yeah, I'm much more familiar with Lewis's life. Okay, I, I know his, his mom became uh, Roman Catholic after his uh, father passed away. Oh, Tolkien. No, Lewis's mother was Catholic. Was it? Yes. Was she? Yeah. Why are you thinking Tolkien? She became Catholic after uh, the father passed away in South Africa. Yeah. That's that's Tolkien. Um, yeah, yeah, so, so Lewis is born in, right, no, you're all good, you're all good, so, uh, Lewis, we, we, Lewis, we can edit, <laughs> we can edit, <laughs> no, it's, it's all good, it's all good, everyone makes mistakes, um, but, uh, no, um, right, I mean, so, uh, Tolkien, uh, you can continue, I think you're, t- you, you, you're talking about Tolkien, so I'll just let you continue. Um, yeah, well, I guess moving on with Tolkien, uh, yeah, his mom was Roman Catholic, and that's kind of how he grew up. Uh, he was a professor for most of his life, and he was kind of known as, like, a, a rather busy man who, when it came to, like, academic stuff, he was pretty sparse, but very influential when he did release things. Um, and it seems like most of his writings came not out of, like, a conscious desire to be an author, but more so just a, a curiosity with writing. Uh, the Cimmerillion was made explicitly because he'd invented, like, these odd languages, and he wanted some stories to go with them. Uh, as I said, The Hobbit was stories he would tell his children. They were bedtime stories. And uh, The Lord of the Rings came about because people wanted a sequel to The Hobbit. And he saw The Cimmerillion and its stories as, um, like, essentially pre-made lore that could help to flesh out the series as he made it. Um, but, yeah, he was a professor for most of his life. So I feel like it would be interesting to have taken a class from someone who wrote one of the most influential books of all time. Yeah, I mean... Just just knowing yeah. him as, like, your professor... Mm-hmm. Right, yeah, and I mean, I, I think it's relatively undisputed that Tolkien is the father of high fantasy. I, I'd agree with that, yeah. Um, uh, the uh, fantasy being seen as like a genre that could have like depth, I think kind of mm-hmm. started with Tolkien, the popular conception of it. Yeah, I mean, he, he definitely popularized it. I mean, there might be some authors out there who kind of like created high fantasy that had more A's and whatnot. But um, moving on, so... What else? Like, what's what's a, a tidbit about Tolkien that wouldn't exactly be a commonly held piece of knowledge? Um, I believe he liked to hide his dentures around when he got older to surprise people. Um, I'm a bit taken aback by that. Okay, that's interesting. So he'd hide his dentures around to to, to scare people or to or to shock them. To just to surprise people. Oh, just a little bit of shock value, you know. It's like a twist in a book. Grandpa, where did you hide your dentures, Grandpa? Where did you hide them? Ha ha, they're in the, the salad bowl today, kids. It's yeah. just like... <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, was, it was a prank he'd pull on his students. That is, that is something else. Yeah, he had a mm. reputation as a prankster. Oh. That's interesting, okay. Well, so why don't we talk about Lewis now? Um, so that was kind of a brief overview. overview. I think Tolkien died in 74, if that's right. He was 81 when he passed away. <laughs> So yeah, he was yeah. He, so they were both relatively old, both Lewis and Tolkien. Did they die? They didn't die. I think Tolkien died after Lewis. Is that right? Um, I believe so. Lewis died at the age of sixty-four. Right. Um, so he wouldn't have lived nearly as long. Um, right. Although I think he was a bit younger during their lives. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Right. Um, right. Um, and so obviously Tolkien shared a, a relatively close relationship with Lewis as well, right? Oh yeah, they were good friends. They'd proofread each other's work, and uh, there are certainly a lot of uh, things that point to them being quite similar. Um, they both served in the military. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
they both were big readers growing up, although Lewis was considered something of like a prodigy uh, with his fascination for writing. Uh, both religious, although uh, Tolkien had something to do with Lewis being a religious man. Um, and they both worked in fantasy, although Lewis is more considered low fantasy, um, given that his fantasy works would often either be quite simple or be sort of adaptations. That's what, like, Narnia is known for, being an adaptation of the Bible in a lot of ways. Right, yeah, so like an allegory. Yeah, um, maybe not a direct adaptation. Right, yeah. Um, yeah, and I mean, Lewis's, Lewis's life kind of kicks off at an early age, much like... Uh, much, much like Tolkien's life, uh, they both kind of have these early tragedies. Um, uh, so Tolkien lost his father at a very young age. Lewis lost his mother at a very young age. Um, I was watching a, an interview of Lewis's stepsons uh, talking about kind of, they call him Jack, right? His name was Jack, or his abbreviated name was Jack. Um, and they were talking about his father and how there was this kind of joyful, almost a, a form of joyful grief about him, right? So that although he knew he had lost a lot, that he had a form of uh, a civility and joy about him, like almost all the time. Yeah, he wrote a book about like called like discovering joy about um, uh, where religion played a big part in that, but it was about kind of that stuff and uh, his nonfiction catalog. Um, he talked about like coming to faith and the things he was grateful for and all that. So he was a relatively happy man in spite of the many hardships he faced. Right, right. And so did did Lewis grow up very theistic or was he an atheist? Like what what would you say was Lewis's kind of journey in that regard? Um I, I believe his parents were religious, but he was an atheist in his teen years and through his twenties. Um he became a theist and i believe he was 29 or 30 and then about a year after that he became uh explicitly christian uh that was due in part to some soul searching and also uh i guess what people might call either a, a prodding or a guiding hand from tolkien who is as we said a roman catholic um but yeah L lewis was very convinced that there was no god as like a young man uh and then that was kind of like a gradual process and he writes a lot about, like, the arguments for and against Christianity and his nonfiction stuff, things like Abolition of Man, uh, where he kind of lays out the reasons why he believes that there is or is not a God and why he's a Christian. Right, right. I, I, I think that's, that's totally right. And furthermore, as, as Lewis got older, um, he kind of—and this is, this is, less, I think, a lesser-known aspect of Lewis's life— is that he still struggles with this kind of concept of doubt. Um, pretty much until he dies, right? He, his, his stepsons actually talk about this extensively. Is that he was kind of very bothered about the uncertainty that religion represented, um, which is interesting coming from someone that is kind of regarded as this kind of like theological hero, right? This this statue, this pillar, this monument of man that kind of stands apart. Yeah, I mean he's he's widely respected. I think a big part of that is that he made a a lot of stories in the Bible interesting to kids through. Um, Narnia, I think, because most kids know Narnia. I, I have a massive hardcover of all the books on my shelf that my dad used to read to me as a child. I remember the movies, uh, which came in the wake of the trend that Lord of the Rings started uh, with their movie adaptations. But yeah, he was uh, explicitly religious throughout most of his career. 
But at the same time, like I said, he was very clear that he wasn't certain about a lot of things. Like, for example, in uh, at the end of the Narnia series, there's a character who uh, gets to go to heaven when, like, I guess the Narnia's version of Revelation happens and, like, it's time for this world to, like, end. And he gets to go to heaven, but he worshipped uh, a different god that wasn't Aslan, the lion, the true god. And Aslan lets him in, and he's like, why? I, I didn't do this. Uh, I didn't, like, deserve this. And Aslan basically was like, through your actions, you worship me. You lived honorably and were a good man. And so I, like, I judge you worthy to enter the kingdom of heaven. And because you were an honorable man, you were serving me unwittingly, even though you were worshipping this, this, like, fake idol uh, explicitly. And... Like, that's an idea that a lot of Christians, like, don't really agree with, right? Like, the, the common Christian line today is um, act, good actions are great, but you also need to have faith. Um, so I, always, that, I was always taken aback by that when I read it as a, a young kid. Um, and then there are even other writings where that, it, he kind of implies the opposite. So I think that he was kind of grappling with this idea his entire life. Mm, right. And uh, just so the audience can know, like, where do you lie personally, Tommy, uh, religiously? Like, what would you say you are? I'm non-denoministic Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, we'd probably be considered pretty uh, progressive when compared to, I guess, what you'd call, like, fundamental evangelism in this country. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, I pretty much lie uh, Protestant, um, not necessarily non-denominationalist, but some, somewhere in the Protestant realm of things. Yeah. So not exactly clear where. Um, but I, I find Lewis's and Tolkien's works both to be incredibly inspirational, both as forms that kind of tap into the concept of faith, Christianity, religion, but also just as stories that teach mores and morals that have a real impact in your life. Yeah, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not surprised they'd both relate to you because Protestant doesn't narrow it down all too much. You kind of have Catholic and then everything else, which falls under Protestant yeah. for the most yeah. part. Um, how many? I think there's over twenty thousand Protestant denominations in this country. Oh, I don't know. There's way too many. Almost um, every Protestant church is its own denomination. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. There's a lot. Yeah. So um, let's let's see. Um, so, what would you say is your favorite book that you've read from either Lewis or Tolkien, or if you want to distinguish between the two, uh, do that as well. Um, I've begun reading The Lord of the Rings. Um, having seen the extended cuts uh, of the movies, I think I've gone about as far as I can without actually just uh, knuckling down and reading them. Uh, but I did love The Hobbit when I read it, that being the completed work of his. Haven't re- touched The Cimmerillion yet. Um, f- the Cimmerillion famously being the book that everybody loves until they read, until they have to like sit down and read it. Um, <laughs> but for Lewis... The two that stick out in my mind are um, probably The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, the first book in Narnia, the ones that came before it were actually written afterwards uh, when he decided he wanted to make it into a series. Mm. And uh, The well, screw tape Letters being right. the other one. Mm. Screw tape Letters, okay. So you've read screw tape Letters then, right? A long time ago. I need to no. reread it. Okay, but okay. Right. I, I know the basic, I remember the basic plot quite well. Uh, okay. A demon named Screwtape. Uh, it's letters from him to a another demon named Wormwood, teaching him how to tempt like a Christian convert, right. like, like a new Christian. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I guess a a book that demonizes its main characters uh, through their own like words and writings in the eyes of Lewis, at least. 
Well, yeah, right. And I mean, uh, screw tape's an interesting example, right? Because it takes the perspective, not only the words and, and, and the opinions of screw tape and wormwood, but it takes the perspective of, of uh, screw tape, right? So it's an approach, right? So an example of this is when he talks about uh, uh, the devil, he mentions him, my father below, right? That's, that's the term that he's referred to as, right? And the enemy, when screw tape says the enemy, that's in reference to God, uh, Christ, the Trinity, heaven, kind of that distinguish. The, the distinguishing between heaven and hell becomes blurred, right, when you're, when you're from a demonic point of view, if that makes sense, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there was also a, a album that, like, adapted it by the Oh Hellos, like a Christian folk band who I quite like, but they decided to twist it around. I think because they probably weren't comfortable writing lyrics from the perspective of screw tape. Mm -hmm. uh, the album's called Dear Wormwood, and it's from the perspective of the, the Christian convert in this scenario. Mm. Um, and about, like, battling with that temptation and then finally, like, saying that you're not going to be controlled by them. So, like, mm. that Soldier Poet King song that most people have heard, that's, like, I think the thematic climax of the album mm. about how, like, God is the soldier, the poet, and the king, and he's going he's gonna to strike you down. Right, right. That's really interesting. Uh, so you said the Oh Hellos? So yeah. Christian folk band? Interesting. I, I think one, one of the better Christian artists out there because they don't chase uh, the trends of Christian radio. Right, right. Um, so you said, I'm going to recap real quick, your favorite books from Lewis, if I recall correctly, that you've read are uh, Screw Tape Letters, and did you say the first book in Narnia, The Lion, Witch, The Wardrobe? Yes, the third book canonically, but the first book that was released. Right, Okay. No, no, that's really interesting. That's really interesting. Have you read Mere Christianity by chance? Or it's on my shelf. I have yet to. I have heard some shelf. of the okay. arguments mm -hmm. from it through religion courses. Right. But um, I have not sat down and read it. I should. It's quite short. Right. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a very interesting book. I, I think if you if you like screw tape letters, you're really going to enjoy Mere Christianity. Um, you know the, the story of Mere Christianity, right? It's not a book. It was originally a series of audio tapes. Um, y yeah, right. it was a, like a, I believe like a radio show that he adapted into book form, like a four-part. Right, right, right. So during the uh, Blitz, the German Blitzkrieg uh, on London, uh, the bombing, uh, a radio station, I think it was the BBC, had approached C.S. Lewis and asked if he would do kind of this podcast effectively on religion, belief, and faith. Uh, and, and he did, and then it went on until effectively until the shellings were ended. There's actually a statement from, I think, a British colonel or a British captain during this time stating, uh, uh, paraphrasing, along the lines of uh, basically Lewis's words kind of comfort them amidst the shelling, right? The, the, the concept of faith, that he finds hope in Lewis's words. Yeah, I, I think that's why The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe opens, uh, and the movie adaptation does this as well, with shellings during World War II. Um, and then, like, leads into, like, the fantastical world. I feel like there was definitely, not just from his personal life, but some, like, thematic uh, relevance to that. Right. And, I mean, that's another thing that I think, as people in 2023, having to read and, and or listen to or watch the Narnia movies or books, we, we lose this sense of immediacy and relation that people during the 1950s and 40s would have had with the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Yeah, reading it for sure. Right, yeah. Right. It would have been something they probably would have experienced in their lifetimes. Yeah. Or at least 
known people who had or seen it on the mm-hmm. news or heard it on the news or TV. It was something that was still very much in the short-term memory of like the public conscience. Right, right. And I think I think just while we're on, we're, we're on this topic, uh, mentioning that's a, a, a pretty significant difference between Tolkien and Lewis in their writing styles. That Tolkien is kind of the complete removal from the world. Yeah. Right. And then you have Lewis, which is yeah. Right. I would say the the attempted removal. I, I don't know how. It, I don't think it's very possible for someone to do that in their writings without. Uh, like, if you want to have moral messages and stuff, I feel like commentary on the real world will always seep in. Mm-hmm. But it, Tolkien was very committed to creating what felt like an entirely unique and fantastical world, which is why it's impossible to draw like a direct link with his work, like you can with Lewis. Where it's like, oh, Aslan is Jesus slash God. Uh, whereas in Tolkien, people will be like, I think that the ends, or like the big trees, for those who don't know, is um, about like the Industrial Revolution, or it's about environmentalism. It's less of a direct thing, more of uh, an inference you have to make. Right. And I mean, this is where me and Tommy are going to probably have some disagreements, and that's that's within um, kind of what the morals, the mores, uh, and the themes of Lord of the Rings, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, these books. We're going to have probably relatively substantial disagreements at different points in time, uh, and we can debate that, and I think that's going to be a very fun um, uh, aspect of this uh, short little podcast series. So oh, yeah. If I start losing, I might just decide to turn my mic into a wind tunnel. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, so uh, while we're on the topic, uh, I'm just going to go over a really quick overview of kind of their lives and just do a really quick recap. As we were saying, uh, Tolkien, born in South Africa, immigrated to England at a young age. His father had passed away. His mother um, had converted to Roman Catholicism, and uh, Tolkien, effectively for his whole life, kept to that tradition that his mother believed in. Um, He was a very devout Catholic by pretty much all accounts. Um, Obviously, it's impossible to know someone's devotion to that kind of thing outside of their own mind. Um, But from secondary and first-hand accounts, it becomes relatively clear that Tolkien was a very devout Catholic, and his testimonies from his children as well seem to indicate that. Um, Tolkien died, you said, at the age of 81. I think that's right. Yeah. Um, You know, he wrote Lord of the Rings. He was a professor at Oxford and I think Cambridge. Is that correct? I don't believe it's Cambridge. I know that he taught at a school before that. Okay. Um, I think that Cambridge might be related to Lewis. I, I yeah, no, because I know yeah, Oxford, Oxford and Cambridge is uh, where Lewis where Lewis taught. Um, and then Lewis, I think, actually ended up retiring at a smaller campus. Yeah. Well, he died a few months after properly retiring. Okay. Quick Google search. What does the internet say? Um, ah, they were both at Oxford, but the college of, uh, it was Pembroke College. Pembroke. Was the one he briefly taught at before Oxford. Mm. Uh, not Cambridge. And this is Tolkien or is this Lewis? That's Tolkien. Okay, Tolkien. Okay. So it's very interesting, right? So uh, Tolkien's works... Uh, are all focused, mainly focused on his, his books outside of what I would call the Middle Earth verse or the art of verses, the technical term. Um, most of his books kind of center around that concept, right? Tommy was talking about the Silmarillion, right? Which is kind of this prelude to the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit. Uh, it, it goes into the backstory of kind of the creation, right? So in the beginning, there was the god of Middle Earth or Arda, and his name is Eru Iluvatar, right? These kind of high medieval. Uh, folklorian 
names. And that's another interesting thing about Lewis and especially Tolkien is, is their interest in philology, which is effectively the study of language. Yeah, um, people treat the Silmarillion now as like a, effectively like a Bible for the Middle Earth universe. It does read a lot like a religious text, um, which is why I don't know anyone who's read it cover to cover, except for you. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> it's not exactly a page turner, but the I disagree. But the details present in it uh, flesh out the Lord of the Rings a lot. They make that series pop a lot more. They are what may get high epic fantasy in a lot of ways. Um, and yeah, he, a lot of his writings outside of the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit were about fleshing out that world, including like some unfinished stuff that was later published as unfinished. Um, but yeah, his works outside of that universe are not nearly as substantial as Lewis, who is most famous for Narnia. But for him, Narnia was kind of like a just a part of his career, uh, bookended by science fiction, low fantasy, nonfiction, a variety of other works um, that he was like also equally proud of. Uh, but Narnia, being the easy to understand low fantasy series, that also served as a really good allegory for the Bible. This is what got popular. And obviously, when the boom of fantasy films after the Lord of the Rings trilogy started, um, that was what got picked up, right? They weren't looking to make an adaptation of mere Christianity for to, to get the Lord of the Rings crowd. They were going to take the battles that are implied in Narnia, and they were going to make them very explicit in the movies uh, as a way to get that crowd. Interesting. So now that we're on the topic of their of their books again, and after you know learning a bit about their lives, I think it's important that we can go into why they wrote these books and, and what drove them to these conclusions and these morals that they wanted to convey in their stories. I think it'd be wise and, and probably a good idea if we start with Tolkien, <coughs> Tolkien first and go into what the uh, concepts of Middle-earth are, why he created Middle-earth the way he did, what inspired him. Uh, uh, do you have any uh, tidbits on that or information? Um, while he did talk a lot about removing his works from the real world, um, I think it's impossible to fully... Uh, remove like his religious beliefs from his works uh i think a lot of like the morals present in his stuff are kind of omnipresent especially since he was praised as someone who upheld like that is like these these objective moral truths and things like that so i think that um his religious beliefs tie in pretty directly to his movies and his books and the movies that they became and i think that um the simple template of Lord of the Rings is how he hides that complexity. Because, like, Sauron isn't a, a super complicated villain at the end of the day. He, he's, he's, he's pretty simple, and I think an allegory for the devil. Um, yeah, I mean, Sauron, Sauron's a very interesting character. Uh, almost all of the villains you see in either, oddly enough, either Narnia or uh, Middle-earth, for example seem to have a very, very, very close tie to this concept of this Judeo-Christian kind of omnipresent evil, or the devil, even though, you know, I, I would get probably uh, kicked in the, in the nuts if it happened to be the case that I said that the devil was omnipresent in most, in most evangelical or, or Protestant or Catholic places uh, now today. Yeah, I mean, like, you look at Sauron, right? Sauron doesn't really have uh, much of an expressed personality, but he's defined by being 
entirely malevolent and incredibly tempting. It's done through the ring, but he his whole thing is that he's incredibly adept at corrupting people, at turning people into these twisted abominations in themselves, the worst versions of themselves. We see that with the uh, the Nazgul in his story, mm. uh, the reigns of men fallen to evil. So I think that the the existence of this morally simple and incredibly tempting evil is in line with most interpretations of Satan at the time. Um, and then in the the Narnia series, the villains are pretty pretty clearly aligned with that because Lewis is under no like pretensions as to what he's doing. It's very clear that this is analogous to the Bible. So when we see these villains, almost all of whom are incredibly charismatic and duplicitous, for me it's pretty clear that they're also being tied into like a, a demonic uh, light or a satanic vibe. Right, like the witch and all in the witch in the wardrobe. The witch is the most uh, clear example of that. Right, yeah. right. Or, uh, well, I think there's a really. Well, what about the what about the last character in the Lost Battle? The uh, is it the evil? I forget. Is it the donkey dressing up as a lion or something really weird like that? Yeah, I, I believe so. I believe it's a donkey dressing up as a lion, uh, false idol, right? Right. Um, or a false prophet. Exactly. Uh, it's the same story of like a, a duplicitous evil. Right. Uh, I would think that that would be. M- more attributable to like a uh, demonic force, whereas um, the witch is more analogous to Satan mm. uh, mm-hmm. because she kills Aslan and then he subsequently defeats her after rising. Uh, right. The way that God rises from the dead and his death is what uh, saves humanity in the Bible. So right. I believe that uh, pretty much every villain in that series is analogous to either a demon or Satan. That's interesting, yeah. Um, so while we're on the topic of their books again, uh, what do you think about the main characters that you see in either Narnia or Lord of the Rings, right? So that being Bilbo Baggins, Frodo Baggins, you know, the, the, the ring, the council. And then for Narnia, you know, you have the children, right? So the Pippinses, is that their name? I forget. I forget as well. Uh, oh, I should know this. <laughs> no, I know we have Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. Right, that's the main, but, main group. Looking at the uh, the children in Narnia, I don't think that they're necessarily analogous to anything overtly religious, but I think that they're meant to uh, exemplify the the um, ideal traits and the flaws that normal people have. They're all wildly different in their personalities, mm-hmm. and none of them are uh, flawless nor like irredeemable people. Um, Lewis looks at, like, redemption with Edmund and even, like, the fall. Like, uh, a lot of people who've only seen the movies don't know this, but in the book, Susan does not go to heaven at the end. Because mm-hmm. Su- Susan, yeah. Susan grew up and went on to believe that Narnia didn't exist, and that it was a game they played as a child. So I think that he really wanted to show um, the full range of good and bad traits in four characters that are neither entirely one or the other. Uh, with those characters. And then I look at um, The Lord of the Rings, and I see a lot more characters who live up to, like, the ideal moral standards of their time, Aragorn being a great example over there. Mm, yeah, Tommy, Tommy has a, uh, uh, I think what's safe to call a man crush on Aragorn a little bit. So. I, I or a moral crush, maybe. A moral crush, that's interesting. I, I do think Aragorn is an amazing example of, like, positive masculinity. Like, you see a lot of people today, you see, like, those gym influencers who call themselves, like, warrior <laughs> poets. Mm. 
but then they're like, oh, be a, be a stoic. And by that, I mean argue with people on the internet. But right, yeah. when I look at Aragorn, I see a, a character who actually, he's very tender with the, his friends. He's a very kind person. He's very soft-spoken. Uh, he is a brave leader and courageous when he needs to be. He's very strong. Mm-hmm. But he's also uh, a humble person. And he's also right. a uh, lover of the arts. I think that he's an actual good example of positive masculinity. Um, and I think that Viggo Mortensen brings that across amazingly in his performance. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, Aragorn, Aragorn's one of those characters that truly personifies nobility. I think that's probably his most kind of prominent characteristic in The Lord of the Rings, is that he's, he's a true noble, and that by the process of him, I'm assuming most people at this point have seen Lord of the Rings, and, and, or at least the movies, in his process of returning to Gondor, what he is doing is he's usurping uh, Denethor, son of uh, Denethor, whatever the frick it is, I forget. Um, and, and what Denethor really represents is kind of a person set in place to wait for a king, but in that process, in that time of waiting, he's become unnoble, he's become unjust, and he's become self-serving. And then you have a noble individual who rises kind of out of, out of the shadows of obscurity and takes the throne. And it's not the fact that he has lineage that makes him special alone. It's the fact that he is noble, right? And that nobility is hidden within kind of the shadows of the unknown a little bit, if that makes sense. I kind of agree. I think that that's more so the case in the movie, oddly enough. It's a, it's a change in the movie yeah. that I do like. Because Denethor is not the um, mentally unwell like tyrant that we see in the movie in the book. In the book, yeah. he's a much more amicable and reasonable person Mm -hmm. and while Aragorn is obviously a very fit ruler and a very noble person I feel like in the book it is more so seen as uh, him just reclaiming his birthright whereas I think in the movie they go to greater pains to show somebody uh, being fit to lead by his virtue more so than his lineage um, mm-hmm. Not to say Tolkien wouldn't agree with that. I just think that it was it was more transparently so in the movie. It's in, it's definitely far more prominent in the movies. Um, a case for this, I think, a case for your argument would be in the first book, when they already discuss. So in the first book, they discuss uh, Aragorn's lineage, his age, his importance, and they and they make it a very key aspect when they're in the council. It's like here is Aragorn, right? And they go through his lineage, son of whatever, blah, 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 blah. Like, like the genealogy in the yeah, Bible. Yeah, right, exactly. I mean, that like the genealogy for Christ, right, the nobility of Christ is important because it's able to be tracked. Uh, I think he goes through Ruth, he goes through da, 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 David, et cetera, to Abraham. Yeah, there's like two chapters of the Bible dedicated to just a list of names. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And, and, and I mean, the, it's, an, it's an interesting uh, kind of cultural aspect that I think a lot of Americans, a lot of Westerners don't understand. Because we, we don't, I don't think we are connected as closely as maybe as, as we once were with our, with our ancestors. Um, and that's an interesting kind of problem we have to solve when reading, when, when reading even like Lord of the Rings, for example, or the Bible, especially. I, I suppose. I don't know. Um, I think the merits of like being very knowledgeable one's ancestors can vary wildly Mm -hmm. um both as a society and on an interpersonal level 
Like for me, you know, my family goes back to like Ireland, came over during the potato famine, all that, set up a little blacksmith shop in potatoes. Pennsylvania. Potatoes. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> Not anymore. That's why we left. Oh. Um, but we set up a little, my family set up a little blacksmith shop in uh, Pennsylvania. And, like, you know, I'm, I'm pretty proud of that. Like I look back at my, my lineage and like I guess what my family's accomplished here. And it, that makes me very happy. But I also have, uh, you know, some people... In, like on, on my mom's side to go back where I'm like, I'm not too proud of that. My ancestors don't give me too much to look up to and take from there. I think as a society, it's the same way when we look at our prominent figures. We have lots of very influential people uh, who influenced our society who uh, are deserving of reverence and some who are better left forgotten. I'd say for every, I don't know, founding father who did like a really great job making this country, there's someone like, I don't know, Christopher Columbus who whose contributions were minimal and whose uh, crimes were far greater than that. Uh, and so I think that while there is a value to ancestry, it should always be uh, mediated. It should always be justified in some way. Right. Uh, let's just, uh, I think we need to close this up real quick. Uh, and we're going to continue this later, I think. Um, but uh, one one last key aspect I really want to touch on, and I think to personify kind of the journey in Tolkien that they went through, not only within their writing process, but within their lives, um, is that uh, they have this immense faith, right? They have a faith in, in a power that transcends human law, uh, and not to go all Americana on us, but we say this, we see the same thing with the founders, and, and in the founding, it's a very prominent principle, right? That, and, it, and it's even a deviation from John Locke, um, and I know this is getting maybe too much into kind of Americana for one second, and we're deviating off. Um, but Lewis and Tolkien have this immense faith, and, it, and it, it, regardless of how much they want to kind of prevent it from bleeding into their works, Tolkien especially, as you hear, he doesn't want an allegory to the Bible. He's, he's explicit about that. I hate allegories, he says. Um, but it, it's a matter of fact that their faith bleeds into their work in rather obvious ways, Right. And even in characters, right? Who is Frodo? Frodo, in a, in a lot of ways, is an allegory for, let's say, like the Pilgrim's Progress. Um, I think it's John Bunyan, is that right? I don't know. John Bunyan or Paul Bunyan, I think, is, is the person who wrote it. But um, it's, a, it's a very interesting aspect that I think um, in our modern world can be overlooked. That once was maybe the prominent aspect when people considered them. So. Fair enough. So, you ready? Yep. Oh, that, was, that was actually pretty good. You want to listen to some of it? Yeah, sure. That was a good dialogue.